Unfucking the Republic is brought to you by Unfucking Insane Level members Sam C, Cringy, Cindy S, Corey S, Nathan E, and Michelle H. On behalf of the team, I quickly want to start by thanking all of our new members to the show and everyone who purchased the native roasted coffee from our partners on the Puspatuck Reservation. Our whole bean options are flying off the shelves, and we're anxious to hear what you think of the new Mellow Maynard blend. Today's episode looks at some familiar refrains, so serial unfuckers are extremely prepared for this topic. If you're new here, then there are a couple of building blocks that might be helpful before we geek out on some numbers and narrative today. Your primers are our shows on MMT, the Chicago School, Peak Oil, and our recent quickie on invasion, inflation, and immigration, with the inflation piece being the most important. Let's go already! This is the story of a political pundit who looked at the world around him and just said, fuck it. Gives the middle finger to authority and says, kiss my ass. But instead of a revolution, he started a podcast. Just what the world needs. Another basic white guy who started a podcast. But it's fun because he curses. A prologue on inflation. The biggest and most misunderstood story of the hour is inflation. The reporting on it is so fucked that it's preventing me from moving on to our other tasks at hand. But it's super important that we get this right, because we're in one of those periods where sentiment changes quickly based on a certain set of assumptions, and these sentiments lead to bad policy decisions for the sake of political expediency. So we're building on a few well-worn themes and tying them together in a masterclass on inflation so we can rightly identify the villains and beat back the prevailing false narrative that threatens to undermine any progressive economic reform. Everything old is new again, unfuckers. So today we travel through time to arrive in the 1970s. The problem that we have here is that there's a series of, uh, of events that have uh, led to higher prices. When people uh, call in sick because of uh, having the virus, it reduces the supply of goods to the economy. Uh, we have a problem with wages going up. We have a problem with commodities and our, our ports and supplies are backed up. And I just don't see any relief from that anytime soon. Uh, even when it comes to gas prices, sometimes they spike and they start to come down as you have an increase in production. We don't hear OPEC uh, increasing production very much. So I'm afraid this number is bad and could get worse before at least the forecasts are it gets better towards the end of the year. This is like everything is red hot. And everything, you know, there's supply chain problems. And everything, there's uh, people who aren't coming to work because of Omicron. But as we just saw, we have a lot of inflation in the system. And, you know, the central bankers are way behind if they actually intend to get it out of the system. And that's going to take a lot of rate rises. It's going to take pain. That's what it takes to remove inflation from the system. On average, American families are now spending $275 more per month than they were this time a year ago. Even your daily cup of joe is not immune. Starbucks is also raising its prices. Cereal company Kellogg's following suit today. Restaurants like Chipotle moving to raise prices by 10%, blaming supply chain costs across the board. Except, of course, this isn't the 70s. All these clips are from February of 2022. The only real frame of reference for inflation that we have in this country, within a memorable time frame for citizens and policymakers alike, is the 1970s. It remains one of the most fascinating periods and also the most misunderstood. 
The reason I'm digging back into this discussion today is because inflation is the most pressing economic issue of the day, and we're getting the discussion very, very wrong. Before we unfuck things a bit, I want you to hold on to a concept at the beginning that we're going to return to at the end. So we're going to go through a bunch of financial blobbity blue today, and I want you to remember these numbers specifically, if nothing else. We'll do some simple math. The Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy estimated that the average American household received $3,400 in stimulus in 2021. As you heard in the last clip we played from ABC, it's estimated that inflation cost the average household an additional $275 per month. That works out to $3,300 a year. So numbers have a tendency to make the mind go numb, so just hold on to those. I deliberately selected a few recent clips from non-conservative outlets, ABC, MSNBC, CNBC, and mad money man himself, Jim Cramer. The first clip is particularly jarring because the pundit blames everything from people calling in sick, people being paid too much, supply chain issues, to OPEC. They're all red herrings, but circulated with such certainty that it can make you feel a bit crazy. I mean, blaming 7.5% inflation on people calling in sick and OPEC releasing too much supply? If you're not versed in economics, these are the kind of pronouncements that gain an air of legitimacy and become baked into the narrative. The bookend clip from ABC then casually says that goods purchased by the average American consumer from cereal to coffee are more expensive without delving into the reasons behind it. The underlying assumption that most people then make is that government policies have something to do with it. But our villain here is not the government. And that's why we need to return to this issue and make sense of it. So I want to go through the 70s a bit because it shows you just how long the post-traumatic effects of high inflation can last. I also cracked open an old macroeconomics textbook from college to level set on a key outcome of inflation. Here goes, quote, during inflation, money loses its value. Thus, the losers are those whose income or receipts are stable in money terms. These include people who are working for a wage or a salary that is fixed in dollar terms, any business that has undertaken to deliver goods or services in the future at fixed prices, retirees who receive pensions fixed in dollar terms, those who have bought bonds or loaned money in other ways. They're eventually paid back in dollars that are worth less. So there you go. So I want to be very clear in saying that inflation is a problem, and at no point will I make light of this phenomenon as it relates to working people, businesses, and certainly retirees. In fact, the point is to illustrate something else my textbook says. Quote, businesses that employ workers at stable wages will win if the prices of what they sell rise more rapidly than their costs, end quote. As we often cover in our economic heavy episodes, matters of money are never one-sided. There are always winners and losers. It just invariably seems like those two camps are always the same. In terms of the arguments behind the causes of inflation, we need to dispense with the biggest argument we hear, and that's the one about government spending. UNFTR. Chapter 1. Ricardian Equivalence The concept known as modern monetary theory has deep roots. Obviously, we covered it in our MMT-specific episode, but we did it in a modern framework primarily to demonstrate that government spending that doesn't directly impact the consumer has almost no effect on inflation. Our purpose there was to defend the stimulus and infrastructure bills that went to shore up things like bridges, tunnels, roads, as well as unemployment insurance, etc. 
I'm going to carve out direct payments and return to them in a bit, but the real point behind our MMT work thus far has been to dispel the deficit myth, which is also the title of Stephanie Kelton's MMT book, particularly as it relates to defense spending. Essentially, if going into deeper national debt and expanding money supply creates inflation as a rule, then our reckless military spending would have done exactly that 10 times over. But it doesn't. The deep roots that I'm talking about go as far back as David Ricardo, one of the most influential economists and social theorists in history. Here's a passage from Thomas Piketty's seminal work, Capital. Quote, when David Ricardo formulated in 1817 the hypothesis known today as the Ricardian equivalence, according to which, under certain conditions, public debt has no effect on the accumulation of national capital, he was obviously strongly influenced by what he witnessed around him. At the moment he wrote, British public debt was close to 200% of GDP, and yet it seemed not to have dried up the flow of private investment or the accumulation of capital, end quote. So Piketty acknowledges that this is not a universal law, but the idea is important to us as it returns over and over again over time. Ricardo's equivalence has come to explain the disconnect between the real economy of the people and the economic behavior of nations. It can also explain a bit about how the markets work because it essentially demonstrates that people act rationally based upon expectations and bake in certain assumptions about their pocketbook. For example, if the government gives individuals a tax cut, people don't necessarily go out and spend a whole bunch of extra money. They simply assume that the government giveth and taketh away and that this will be a temporary condition. At some point, the government is going to come calling and take it back. I want my $2! To wit, when the most impoverished Americans received direct payments last year, the research shows that nearly all of the money went to pay for food, rent, and debt. There wasn't a run on luxury goods all of a sudden. That's not how normal people behave. People predominantly act in accordance with their basic needs first. It's only when wealth accumulation is sustained, such as we've seen among the top 1%, that people will begin to spend on non-necessities. It's why Americans didn't suddenly pull back on their own personal spending or panic when the government went wildly into debt over protracted wars in the Middle East. Ricardo's theory holds in modern terms if we take Japan, for example, and we'll use them to illustrate two points. The Japanese economy just recorded a second straight month of inflation growth with core consumer prices rising 0.5%, but that was less than the target, and the majority of it was due to a 22% increase in fuel prices driven by commodity speculation in the global markets. Japan, like many other energy-dependent countries, will feel the effects of this directly and dramatically, but the central bank in Japan doesn't foresee a change to monetary policy as they don't expect price increases in consumer goods like we will see in the United States. Why? Because their corporations didn't increase prices. And again, as far as the government spending and debt to GDP are concerned, recall our other lesson from Japan in the MMT episode. If government spending was the cause of inflation, Japan would be out of control because their debt-to-GDP ratio is 250% to our 127. So the government spending argument goes out the window and Ricardo's theory is upheld. Nevertheless, the pundit class still maintains that the government is putting too much money into your hands and you're to blame for causing inflation. But nearly every other industrialized nation followed suit with direct payments, and far more robust than we did in many cases. But inflation didn't immediately materialize when Trump did it. And the last major direct increase in government spending, money that actually impacted Americans in the form of a stimulus, was already a year ago, and that money is gone, baby, gone. 
Remember that the It's Fucked For Sure money has yet to be spent, and we won't see the impact of it for several years to come. Well, jeez. It's Fucked For Sure means infrastructure on Planet Max. The government spending issue simply doesn't hold water. It's not the cause of our particular brand of inflation, and that brings up another key difference in theories, mostly between the Keynesian and Friedman camps. One of the most important selling points of the Friedman camp was simplicity. Uncle Dick Noggin, For the uninitiated, that's Milton Friedman. Spoke about inflation in absolute terms. Terms that politicians and people could understand. If you print too much money, it will cause inflation, and inflation is the worst thing that can happen, period. It's one of the reasons that Friedman acolytes believe that some unemployment is absolutely necessary to contain inflation. There are a couple of names for this general theory. One is wage price spiral. The more employment there is, the more control employees have over wage pressure. And there's some truth to this, so I don't want to discount it entirely. This is a backbone assumption of all economic theory, but one that the Friedman camp places far too much value on because, again, people are rational. The number of available jobs, alignment of expertise, and fundamentals of what the market will bear all impact wages. But in Friedman's world, some people need to be without in order for corporations to be with. The acceptance of this narrative turned American economics and subsequently most Western economies into a very black and white issue. It was already prevailing wisdom by the time of Nixon, as Benjamin Applebaum writes in The Economist's Hour saying, quote, he, meaning Nixon, believed the government faced a choice between inflation and unemployment, and he knew what he wanted to order from the menu. He explained to his aides that nobody lost elections because of inflation, hint, hint, Jimmy Carter, telling them, quote, unemployment is always a bigger issue. It was this mentality and the simplicity of thought that led the Nixon team to do many of the things that would ultimately set up the late 70s and 80s for an implosion and create the circumstances for stagflation, end quote. So we're going to hang in the 70s for a bit, as promised, because it sets the stage for more than stagflation. So let's look at Nixon's response to a slowing economy that had enjoyed two decades of unparalleled growth prior in the post-war boom. One lever that Nixon pulled was price controls. I bring it up because at some point this might feel like an obvious solution for what ails us today. Just force corporations to limit price increases. But again, as Applebaum writes, quote, the price controls were popular and briefly effective, but distortions soon burst into view. In June 1973, the evening news showed footage of workers in an East Texas chicken farm drowning 43,000 chicks by dumping them into oil drums because the price of feeding chickens had climbed above the price of chicken. It's cheaper to drown them, the owner explained, end quote. Now, the bottom line, apart from that horrific example and the fact that we're going to have to take a break in a second to pick 99 up off the floor, is that quick fixes are rarely the answer. And artificially manipulating a market economy can have dramatic consequences. Keynesian economists view the world in far more complex terms and believe every era, every circumstance is different, and there are multiple levers to pull depending upon certain inputs. Now, with that in mind, let's look more closely at what's happening at this moment. We're looking specifically at three major inputs of inflation, housing, crude oil, and consumer goods. Chapter 2. Housing Housing is the shortest segment of our episode today, but that's not meant to imply that it's a small issue. But housing is multifaceted and trends take a while to develop in this market, so it's less a part of the immediate narrative. 
Now, having said that, it's part of a much larger story that definitely deserves its own unfucking in due course. But for our purposes today, there are some troubling developments that are creating inflationary pressures on home buyers and renters. And these pressures are preventing some from achieving the American dream. We wanted the real McCoy, a place of our own. Not just any old place, though, but a place of which every average man could proudly say, this is my home. Ah, yes, the real American dream, homeownership. Recall the days of yesteryear when returning GIs were given an opportunity to own a home of their own. If they were white. Yeah, I mean, yeah, if they were white. <clears throat> Correct. As I was saying, the days of yesteryear when a white returning GI was given a chance at homeownership through government programs that... And only men, mind you. Credit wasn't extended to women for another 20 years. Again, correct you are. <clears throat> ah, homeownership. The... No, fuck it. You know housing policy has been discriminatory since forever in America. That's why 36% of the 122 million households in the United States are still headed by renters and the numbers are drastically skewed against ethnic minorities for the structural issues that we covered on our Economics of Racism episode and young people who don't yet earn enough to afford housing in today's market. So here's where we need to give room to the supply chain argument, at least in terms of new housing and construction. Part of the issue today is that big ticket items like raw materials, I'm talking about steel and lumber and all the things, that copper, the things that go into building homes. Those things are still expensive and inventory through international trade routes has yet to sort itself out. So in terms of the rental market, renters found relief from evictions during the pandemic, but as those programs come to an end, landlords are moving to get back lost revenues in what could become the next great housing crisis. There's a ton of demand and too little supply. But in terms of the pure rental market, there's another fucked up development that is finally getting some attention. According to a ProPublica special report, they discovered that, quote, large private equity firms accounted for 85% of Freddie Mac's 20 biggest deals financing apartment complex purchases by a single borrower. All but one of those deals occurred in 2015 or later, as low interest rates propelled private equity firms to seek billions in Freddie-backed loans for mass apartment purchases. Today, private equity firms own and control more than a million rental units, and the number is growing rapidly each year and might be undercounted. That might not sound like a lot, but as you can imagine, they're buying up properties in cities and other densely populated areas, cutting expenses and jacking rents. So the impact that they're having on these urban areas is outsized and extremely dangerous for low-wage workers who are increasingly being pushed out by corporate gentrification. Across the board, the numbers are pretty bleak. Demand is so high that according to Rent.com, the median rent in 2018 was $1,027. In 2020, it was $1,100. Rents are projected to increase in 2022 over last year by 21%. Why? Because they can. There's nothing else at work here, and this is just one of those areas where taken in isolation, it seems problematic, sure. But in conjunction with the rest of the fuckery that we're about to go through, it has all the hallmarks of a crisis. Chapter 3. Crude Oil. Didn't we just fucking do this topic? Yeah, crude oil. I know you're probably all like, Max, the horse is dead. Stop beating it. But I can't. Because wouldn't you know it, these fuckers are back at it again. In fact, it will make more sense than ever because we literally just went through it in that recent episode. So start with the Japan example from before. 
The reason they're experiencing marginal inflation right now is predominantly due to the 22% increase in fuel oil. If you have a wallet and a car, I certainly don't need to tell you about prices at the pump. These are always lagging, by the way, so even more pain is to come because crude prices are spiking right now. The networks are running hog wild with the Ukraine narrative, but this fairly recent development doesn't explain the trend line over the past year when the prices were hitting some pretty remarkable highs. The two main economic factors behind oil prices are supply and demand or dollar strength and weakness. The primary political factor behind oil prices is typically sanctions or upheaval that leads to supply disruption. So different but related. But recall that the real driver ever since Leo Melamed decided to turn everything in the world into a gambling chit is the commodity trader. We unpacked this deliciously evil scenario in our peak oil show so you know how much these fuckers can move a market just by forecasting high prices. To dispense with the supply and demand notion, I've included two separate charts on our substack that illustrate how supply and demand, because we have so many sources for crude, always move together. And it's been that way for literally 50 years since the big oil shock of the 70s. Essentially, there's always enough supply to meet demand. The second of the two charts on Substack illustrates reserves and how we manage to meet demand through fluctuations in the market. Essentially, even if demand suddenly skyrockets as it did post-COVID, not only do we pump enough out of the ground to meet demand, we also have enough in reserves around the world to fill gaps in production while they ramp up. So when you hear about strategic reserves, that's what they're talking about. And we're not the only ones that have them. In terms of pricing, dig this. Demand for crude oil in 2018 was 99 million barrels a day. In 2019, it was 99 million barrels a day. Pricing was $75 and $65 respectively, and it had more to do with fluctuations with the dollar. But that's about the new normal for the settled price of crude when demand is around 99 million barrels. So at the height of the pandemic, demand dropped to 91 million barrels a day, and because it was so sudden, and we had such robust reserves, price cratered along with demand. Now in 2021, demand built back to 96 million barrels and it's projected to hit 99 again in 2022, 101 in 2023. So we're essentially back in business to where we were at the 2018 and 2019 levels. And yet, these fuck tits on Wall Street keep signaling higher and higher prices. So see if you can spot the difference in the narratives that I'm about to give you. Let's start with the true story first from the EIA, the agency that we covered on our peak oil episode. So I'm quoting from their most recent projection, quote, in our January 2022 short-term energy outlook, we forecast that crude oil prices will fall from 2021 levels. In the fourth quarter of 2021, the price of Brent crude oil, the international pricing benchmark, averaged $79 per barrel. We forecast that the price of Brent will average 75 per barrel in 2022 and 68 per barrel in 2023. The declining prices are driven by a shift from global petroleum inventory declines during 2021 to inventory increases in 2022 and 2023, end quote. So what does this say? This basically says that we have enough oil, we have enough crude in the ground, we have enough in supply and reserves that we're going to be able to stockpile greater reserves, more supply in the coming year and actually two years. And so that the average price will fall. And remember, they have all of the same inputs. They can make all of the same analyses that the Wall Street traders can. So they're baking in a hedge for if there's going to be saber rattling and trouble in Ukraine. They're, they're baking in all of these assumptions, right? 
So these are the absolute price projections. The leading energy agency on the planet foresees over the next two years, a high of 79 and then dropping. Remember, that's not to suggest that we're going to see a long-term decline in consumption as we discussed. The all things being equal scenario is that production and demand will level off over the next few years, and then it's going to increase in the out years all the way to 2050 if we don't do something to mitigate the growth of fossil fuel usage in developing countries and throughout Asia. So that's a different story, and that's our climate impact story, right? And we covered a lot of that stuff, but this is just a current pricing story. And so to that end, here's the end cap of that forecast. Quote, we forecast that global petroleum consumption will increase by 3.6 million barrels per day in 2022, driven by more consumption in the U.S. and China, which together account for 39% of consumption growth. We forecast that global petroleum inventories will increase by 0.5 million barrels per day, which will put downward pressure on crude oil prices. We forecast the price of Brent crude in 2022 will fall from 79 in the first quarter to 71 in the fourth quarter. So I'm including all of this to demonstrate that these aren't Pollyanna figures, right? These are hard and fast economic models that are always spot on barring unforeseen events like an embargo. So let's check in with Wall Street and see if you can spot the difference because as of this recording, Brent and West Texas Intermediary, the two most important benchmarks, are both trading in the mid-90s dollar range. Here's a few excerpts from a Barron's article this month. Quote, RBC Capital Markets explain one scenario where oil prices could jump to record levels. It has more to do with demand than supply. For now, analyst Michael Tran sees very little pressure on the supply side to restrain prices. Oil supplies are growing at a relatively slow rate, in part because OPEC has been unwilling and potentially unable to boost production. End quote. That's a fucking lie, by the way. The report goes on to quote Tran and other analysts saying, quote, to be sure, RBC isn't projecting $150 oil or even trying to accurately predict the moment oil peaks. If the current trend holds, Tran thinks oil can touch or flirt with $115 a barrel or higher this summer. Truest analyst Neil Dingman is also predicting higher oil prices, writing on Monday that prices above 125 are possible soon as geopolitical tensions continue to escalate. Credit Suisse's Manav Gupta thinks that even if the standoff in Europe cools off, prices might rise even more, end quote. So 115, 125 is possible, maybe, according to Credit Suisse, even higher than 125. And there are media segments and articles all over the place talking about how prices could exceed 150 a barrel, maybe even 200. And these are all taken from the fervor being created among these analysts who are spiking the fucking punch bowl, just like they did in the example we gave when Morgan and Goldman were in a race to push prices to a buck 50 a few years ago. And what happened? They did it. These prices are a realization of their forecasts because they're creating it. It's out of thin air. But why did they do it? Because the banks needed liquidity and held enormous leveraged positions in the commodities markets. High prices are great for three camps, oligarchs, oil companies, and Wall Street. There is simply no economic rationale for oil prices to continue surging to preposterous levels like the ones touted by these fucking analysts. And hey, we fell for that once already. Can we please not fall for that again? There's an old saying in Tennessee, I know it's in Texas, probably in Tennessee, that says, fool me once, shame on, shame on you. It fooled me, we can't get fooled again.
Chapter 4 Corporate Greed And that, my dear unfuckers, brings us to the third leg of the asshole stool, and that's corporate greed. We're going back to our Kellogg's taking price example now and broadening it a bit to prove our thesis about current inflation. I've selected 10 of the largest consumer good manufacturing companies in the world to highlight today. The companies that I examined are Tyson Foods, Nestle, Procter & Gamble, PepsiCo, JBS, Unilever, 3M, L'Oreal, LVMH Moet Hennessy, and Imbev. My goal was to examine a huge swath of companies that have products on your shelves from food and beverage to healthcare and personal care products. It's a basket of consumer goods that are, for better or for worse, representative of the core basis for inflationary trends in practical terms for the consumer. These 10 companies have a combined revenue of a half a trillion dollars. These are the market movers. These are the market makers. But each is multinational, so they're not pulling all of their revenue from the United States. But that's an important part of the story. More on that later. For expediency, we're going to comb through the annual reports and investor relations decks of three specifically, so if you need a nap before show notes, this is probably a good time. While we're not going to drill into the other seven on the list, the lesson here is that what we discuss holds true for each of them as well. And while this is only a partial list, seriously, a very small cross-section of the brands that these other seven companies control, it'll give you an idea of how ingrained they are in our daily lives. So here's a snapshot of the brands that they control. Pepsi, Tropicana, Lay's, Doritos, Gatorade, Starbucks bottled coffee drinks. Moy Park, Primo, Certified Angus Beef, Ozo, Pilgrims. Hellman's, Dove, Ben & Jerry's, Vaseline, Lipton. Post-it, Scotch, Command, Scotch Bright, Scotch Guard. Maybelline, Garnier, YSL Beauty Products, Prada Fragrances, Giorgio Armani Beauty. Louis Vuitton, Christian Dior Couture, Fendi, Tiffany & Co., Bulgari. Budweiser, Corona, Bex, Modelo, Stella Artois, Goose Island. Impressive, no? Let me state up front that these companies aren't all bad. They employ a shit ton of people. Some have very impressive wages and benefits, and while none of them, in my humble opinion, pay enough in corporate taxes, they're by no means tax evaders the likes of some of the big tech companies, investment banks, or fossil fuel companies. On the flip side, Most of their products are absolute shit that either harm us personally or harm the environment. So there's that. And no matter how much lip service they pay to sustainability and other ESG measures that's literally all over their fucking annual reports and I want to throw up in my mouth when I read them, it's fucking bullshit. They make some fine products, they're really good at marketing, employ a bunch of people, yada yada, but in terms of social and environmental impact, they're all terrible. But we need to acknowledge that they make the world go around and the consumer economy hum. Behind all of these shitty products, there are manufacturing, distribution, marketing, and retail channels all supported by these companies and thousands of others just like them. So there's a multiplier effect to their largesse that shows up in other parts of the global economy and puts food on people's tables. But that's not our story today. Our story is to show how they deliberately targeted the American people in their pursuit of profit motivated purely by greed and secure in the fact that not only will we not really notice how they're fucking with us, they're actively engaged in shifting the blame. The three that we're going to slice and dice are Tyson, Nestle, and Procter & Gamble because they're the most representative of everyday consumer products that you might find in your home. These three companies alone have revenue of more than $200 billion annually, and they're considered the stable stalwarts of big business and consumer products. So without further ado, let's tackle the biggest asshole first. Tyson Foods. 
Open your cupboard and fridge and holler when I call out a product that you have in your home. If you're a vegan like 99, you can pass on this part, but for most Americans, it's pretty amazing. Tyson Chicken, Jimmy Dean, Hillshire Farm, Ballpark, Raised and Rooted, Adele's Sausage, State Fair, Nature Raised Farm, Sara Lee, Wright Brand, Bosco's, Gallo Salami, Bonici, The Brust Company, Chairman's Reserve, IBP, Lady Astor, Mexican Original, Open Prairie, Star Range Angus, Wonder Bar, Advanced Pierre Foods, Barber Foods, Big AZ, Fast Fixin', Like Mom's Landshire, Russer, Steakies, Original Philly Cheesesteak, Brian, and Reuben. I'm going directly to their annual report for financial highlights and commentary that they're required to release to the public. And at a certain point in this and our other two examples, I'll make sure to call out the ickiest part so you don't miss it. So here's 2021 versus 2020 sales only for Tyson. Quote, sales were negatively impacted by a decrease in sales volume across each of our segments. Hmm which accounted for a decrease in $1.19 billion due in part to the impacts of a challenging labor environment as well as the impact of an additional week in fiscal 2020. Huh. End quote. Hmm. So sales were down. Well, however did they survive? Let's read on. Quote, sales were positively impacted by higher average sales prices, which accounted for an increase in $5.59 billion. The increase in average sales price was primarily attributable to favorable products mix and the pass-through of increased raw material costs, end quote. The upshot of this price manipulation was an increase in net income from $3 billion in 2020 to $4.4 billion in 2021 on sales of $47 billion. Now, pulling these figures together is a monumental task, by the way, because they have a few subsidiaries across the world. What do you mean, like 20? Uh, 50? Higher. 80? 100? 175 from the United States to Australia, the Philippines, Turkey, Colombia, Netherlands, UK, Peru, Brazil, New Zealand, Cayman Islands, China, Luxembourg, Malawi, Spain, Italy, Korea, Canada, Singapore, Bermuda, Uruguay, and Portugal. Ah, yes. Luxembourg and the Caymans. Manufacturing hubs of the world. Right. Now, in fairness, they paid an effective tax rate of 24.3% for fiscal year 2021, which is more than I can say for the tech giants and the big banks, so there is that. All told, it's a lot to manage, which is why their top five executives only brought in $47 million in compensation last year. Oh, COVID cutbacks. Do you think they'll be okay through all of this, especially with all the people they killed at their facilities? Actually... That's up a couple million from the year before. So here's the most important line. Quote, average sales price increased due to favorable sales mix and inflationary market conditions. End quote. Same story as before. They saw an opportunity to increase prices beyond what would have been compensated for any increases in expenses and exacted a toll on the American consumer by pushing their increased profits through to us by raising prices. Nestle. Heading over to the real giant in the world now, Nestle. One of the shittiest companies on God's green earth and manufacturers of Alpo, Purina, Boost, Carnation, Cheerios, Coffee Mate, DiGiorno, Dryer's Ice Cream, Fancy Feast, Friskies, Gerber, Haagen-Dazs, Hot Pockets, Kit Kat, Lean Cuisine, Nescafe, Nespresso, Nesti, Purina, Perrier, Starbucks Coffee at Home, Stouffer's, Toll House, and Tombstone Pizza. Don't buy any of these name brand items? That's okay. They have 2,000 more in their portfolio, so I'm sure there's something Nestle on your shelves. Let's take a look at their third quarter earnings. Their annual report actually drops after this recording, but their forward guidance will tell us what 2021 probably looks like. 
This is just for three quarters now. Organic growth reached 7.6% with real internal growth of 6% and pricing of 1.6%. Growth was supported by continued momentum in retail sales, steady recovery of -of out-of-home channels, increased pricing, and market share gains. Total reported sales increased by 2.2% to 63 billion. Again, that's for three quarters. And full year guidance, so this is what they expect for the entire year, they expect full organic sales growth between 6 and 7%. The underlying trading operating profit margin is expected to be around 17.5%, reflecting the initial time delays between input cost inflation and pricing, as well as the one-off integration costs related to the acquisition of the Bountiful Company's core brands. So, beyond 2021, our midterm outlook for continued moderate margin improvement remains unchanged. Underlying earnings per share in constant currency and capital efficiency are expected to increase this year. So, they're growing organically everywhere, fine, and increasing prices as well, all leading to top-line revenue growth and a 17.5% profit margin. So, I want to check on something. Presumably, the inflation inputs they talk about are global, so I'm sure prices went up everywhere, right? Let's see. They have three huge zones. Zone Europe, Middle East, and North Africa had 7.2% organic growth and 0.8% pricing growth. Zone Asia, Oceania, and Sub-Saharan Africa had 4.1% organic growth and 0.2% price growth. Hmm. Let's look at the Americas. 8.4% organic growth. Oh, and 3.2% price growth. So they increased pricing 0.2% in Asia, Oceania, and Sub-Saharan Africa, 0.8% in Europe, the Middle East, and North Africa, and 3.2% in the Americas. Yep. The only suckers that wound up paying more for their shitty fucking products were us. You dick. Procter & Gamble. So to round things out, let's take a look at one of the most lauded and stable companies that ever existed. Good old P&G, Proctology and Gambler. But you may know them better by their brands. Pampers, Bounce, Downey, Dreft, Tide, Bounty, Charmin, Always, Tampax, Braun, Gillette, Head & Shoulders, Old Spice, Herbal Essences, Pantene, My Black is Beautiful, Cascade, Febreze, Dawn, Swiffer, Mr. Clean, Crest, Scope, Metamucil, Vicks, Pepto, Bismol, and Secret. Yet again, a banner fucking year for corporate America, baby. Quoting from their 10K, which is what the SEC annual report filing is called, The primary factors driving year-over-year changes in net sales include overall market growth in the categories, wow, great, in which we compete, product initiatives, hmm, sounds great, competitive activities, parentheses, the level of initiatives, pricing, and other activities by competitors, marketing spending, retail executions, and acquisition and divestiture activity, all of which drive changes in the underlying unit volume, blah, 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 as well as our pricing actions, Changes in product and geography mix and foreign currency impacts on sales outside of the United States. They never just say we raise prices. It's always something fucked up like pricing actions, taking price, price initiatives, mix. Anyway, so what were the results? A 7% increase in sales from 70 billion to 76 billion and a 15%, wait, what? A 15% increase in profits from 15.7 billion to 17.9 billion? Well done, P&G. How did you pull off double the profit margin growth over revenue growth? Quote, the primary drivers of changes in gross margin are input costs, energy and other commodities, pricing impacts, there's another good one, pricing impacts, geographic mix, for example, gross margins in North America are generally higher than the company average for similar products, end quote. (laughs) Oh, 
So you too took price. And mostly from Americans, I get it. Not only that, but P&G is sitting on an eye-popping $10 billion in cash, and they were able to pay less than their counterparts with an effective tax rate of only 18% in the United States. <sighs> no need to belabor the point, I guess. It's always the same old fucking story. But I do want to revisit the numbers from the beginning of the show to drive this home. The Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy estimated that the average American household received $3,400 in stimulus in 2021. As you heard in the last clip we played from ABC, it's estimated that inflation cost the average household an additional $275 per month. That works out to $3,300 a year. Prices increased on consumer goods, but only in America. And they all did it. Why? because you had the money. They saw that you had an additional $3,400 in your pocket. So they all put their grubby hands in your pocket and picked it. They took 3,300 of it back. Between these assholes and the speculative fuckheads on Wall Street who are unnaturally driving up oil prices beyond what is reasonable by any economic models or standards, they fleeced us all. And the housing crisis has yet to explode. But when private equity gets into the game, I can promise you this. The only fucking winners are the private equity firms. It's a zero-sum game for them all the time, never not. When we explored the inflation question as it related to GDP and the quickie, it was still big picture and very theoretical. But when you put it in real dollars and cents terms and expose the lies behind the narrative, there's no escaping the reality that corporate America's banner year was exactly to the dollar at your expense. Numbers don't lie. Corporations do. All. The. Time. Here endeth the lesson. So hey and fuckers, welcome to Not Show Notes. A little bit of a head fake here. Is this the what we're doing? Not show notes. Not calling out listeners one <laughs> by, by one. one. Bloopers and thank yous. There's so <laughs> much fun. Uh, so we have a little experiment. If you haven't noticed, show notes have become extraordinary. They've become like their own living, breathing thing. So what we're thinking about doing this time as an experiment is to release show notes separately to give us a little bit more time to talk to our listeners and to go through the emails. It was inevitable that we would get to a point when the show grew that we would have so much feedback within a show that it would take us longer to cut it up, put it out. And listen, we're not opposed to putting out uh, you know episodes that are two hours long, you know, because they're chapters and what have you. We just thought that it might be a good mental break and then we could break it up and it gives us a little bit more time to put some love and care into show notes and instead of you know racing through them. So that's what we're doing. That's what we're doing. It's an experiment. Yeah. Let us know what you think. Um, before we go, though, we have a quick update about a partnership yep. with a brewery. So I'm going to throw to us <laughs> that we recorded <laughs> five minutes before this <laughs> as a little behind the scenes. And we're going to tell you about that. So look for all the info in show notes. We had teased something a little while ago about a special 
let's say promotion for a top tier listeners that we have. And it is finally here. And we are, I mean, it's hard to say that we're excited because it's just not a big enough word. Like honored, humbled, excited. I mean, if you pick a superlative and that's how we feel about what a listener did for us. And in turn, we're going to be doing for our insane level members of this show. God, where do we start? I mean, this is, first of all, there's out of gamey roots here, right? Most importantly, we had a a brewer from out of gamey reach out to us a while ago. His nickname is Nettie Hugger, right? If you are kind of new to the show, you'll know that um, we record in New York. We are New Yorkers, but our adopted city, our adopted county, I guess, for the show is out of gamey in Wisconsin because there is a, a woman there named Nettie who has been part of the progressive movement and protesting pretty much everything that's wrong with the world, basically her entire adult life. And she is a fucking badass. And then she introduced us to our buddy Knudsen. And then we met Alex and Alex works at a brewery. And uh, because she is the in-house beer maven, I'm gonna pass a little bit over to 99 now to talk about how this beer partnership developed. Yeah, so Alex reached out with the idea to combine our native roasted coffee and a beer. And naturally, the best vehicle for that is a stout. So Naturally. Naturally, <laughs> yeah. So Alex works at a brewery called McFleshman's Brewing Company, which is in Appleton, which is in out of Gamey, I believe. And they've been brewing since 2017 and serving beers year-round in their English-style taproom and in their German-style beer garden during the warmer months. Now, it should be noted that we have also pledged that Again, if our show is big enough, we have enough members and enough support someday to eventually take this on the road, that our very first road show will definitely be at McFleshman's Brewing Company. Yeah. And this is from, uh, this is kind of a little bit about them, which I think is, is really beautiful. So it says, McFleshman's Brewing Company respects the beer, its history, and those who make it. An inclusive community cornerstone, McFleshman celebrates and advances the craft of brewing by way of art as well as science. While they are without question fans of tradition, they are also just not afraid of innovation. That, and they really dig beer. Now, Alex works for the two founders. I think it's uh, Allison and Bobby. And uh, Allison's actually from an oil family in the Texas, Oklahoma area. And Bobby grew up on an Oklahoma farm, later built homes and all that stuff. But together, they just had a passion for beer. So they came together and, and then founded McFleshman's. But also, Bobby worked on the Cassini mission to Saturn. There's that he's too. A spaceman. So the guy's a fucking rocket scientist yeah, who decided he's like, oh, to. Oh, beer's cool. <laughs> to, to put his uh, talents to much better, more productive use, right? Partnership was just a match made in heaven. And so Amy sent some beans down there and they made this stout. So this stout, it <laughs> is called High Point. So, you know, the high point of your day or the high point of your week listening to... Make it the high point of your night, that, like, yes. a, like a weekend night. Well, I was going to say it's named High Point because UNFTR is the high point of someone's weekend. Yes. Yes. So it's an Imperial Stout and um, let's see. They picked up like all of our pod art and uh, put it into the background of the label, which is a lot of fun. It's very cool. Yes, so it is aged in premium 12-year bourbon barrels for nine months, Hmm. and it's bootstrapped with a direct infusion of flavorful organic coffee. 
from the Unkachag Nation. So it is, it's, it is something. I mean, it's, this is all things UNFTR in a bottle. Yeah. It really is. First of all, we should note that it's also, um, I think it's 172% alcohol, right? Is that what it comes <laughs> it out is, to? It is 12% ABV and it's Ooh. a 16, some, it's a 500 milliliter bottle. So whatever that comes out to an ounce is. It's real. It's boozy. It's a fucking meal. I loved is what it. it is. Man. I loved it. Oh, it was, me too. It was a perfect. You know, I'm very sensitive to to sweetness in stouts, and it's it it has sweetness, but not in a not in like a saccharine way. Not in a it's not overdone. It's not artificial sweetness. It's a natural sweetness. It has a boozy aftertaste. The coffee is there, and it's you know it's it's palatable. It's I really I really loved it. 99 also checked out on the beer app what uh, the the customers directly in Wisconsin are saying about the beer. Yeah. And it's got rave reviews. Yeah, people who picked it up at the tap room who checked it in on Untapped. It had like a almost like a like a 4.0 rating, which if you're an Untapped person, that's really good cuz people can be very, you know, very uh, frugal with their ratings there. But people were liking it. People were enjoying it, drinking it. Um, I could not check it in, which was very sad to me because it would reveal my identity. Ah. So I'd be the lone New Yorker <laughs> who checked in this beer. But I'm super proud of the collaboration and I'm super proud that we have this now. So so to clarify, we're we're not selling this beer because we're not we you know, we don't have a liquor license yeah, in, our, illegal, in our podcast right? studio. Right. And um, but I do believe, I mean if you go, if you live in the area and you, you know, trek to McFleshman's, I believe they should have some as well as some UNFTR stickers. But what we've decided to do is make this a perk uh, or a temporary perk for our insane level members. So our insane level members, to refresh your memory, are our highest tier members on buymeacoffee.com slash UNFTR. So those are people who give us $50 a month. And that is no small feat. That's a lot of money, and we're so appreciative. So when this partnership came about, we figured that'd be the best way to kind of be like, hey, here's a cool thing, you know, just just for supporting us. We have a limited number, which means if you sign up to be an Insane Level member, you could get these bottles. We do want to, I mean, I don't know how to say it without sounding like a dick, but like, don't just sign up and then cancel. Like, this is something if you're thinking about, if you were thinking about becoming a member before, maybe this pushes you over the line to do it. Well, I think it's definitely going to be a collector's item. Yes, that too. I would would save, well, you do what I did. I, I actually took two home and I drank them, but I'm saving the bottle. But you could actually save a full bottle of it, I suppose, and drink the other one. Totally. You, this is definitely something that can age. You know, stouts age well, and especially because this was already, you know, aged in a in a barrel. Which so is unbelievable. I know. Another thing to note is that McFleshman's is doing a series of, like, blank point stouts. So if you go to their Instagram, you'll see, okay, so they have one called Tipping Point, Inflection Point, Vantage Point. If you go to their Instagram, it's McFleshman's, which is M-C-F-L-E-S. H M A N S on Instagram and I'm sure they have, you know, Twitter and and all the other the other socials, but if you go there you can check out the other one. So if you are in the area and you want to, you know, collect all five, compare and contrast cuz they they're not all made with coffee. They have all different uh variations there, but it's the same stout base. So yeah, that's that's what we're doing. Yeah, so I mean what we're thinking about is putting together a special care package that includes some of the normal premium items that we give to our insane level members. We're going to have to think carefully about packaging. Um, there's obviously going to have to be a disclaimer and disclosure to uh, guarantee that you're over 21 to accept the package. Yeah, you have to send me your social security card and a copy of your passport and driver's license. Bank account and, and ABA birth, number. Yeah, birth certificate, your VIN number. Yep. 
and and then we can send it to you. Exactly right. Yeah. So we're, there's going to be a, a disclaimer um, to make sure you're over 21. Then we'll be able to package it up and send it to you. Um, and I think that what, uh, we only have because we're going to be sending two bottles uh, to each insane member. We already have a few insane members. I think we're opening this up to the next 20 as well. Right. Yeah, I think I think 20 is is about the number and that yes. should get us to. Uh, yeah, to the number. So uh, understand that for us, this is surreal, to say the least, because a, a listener, a listener that we already love, thought enough to reach out directly, mind you, to Amy over at Native Coffee Traders, who sent the coffee directly without even our involvement to come up with something just to kind of honor the show and what we're doing here. And of course, uh, acknowledge our love for Outagamie County. But this is the type of thing that just, I mean, this is our listener base. This is what, this is the next level stuff that everybody is doing with Unfucking the Republic. And again, in my wildest imagination, when we started just over a year ago, I wouldn't have thought about that we'd be sitting here right now talking about like a real high class brewer having made and aged for nine months. So again, just can't say thank you enough to all the people at McFleshman's and uh, to everybody in Outagamie. Make sure you stop by, give Nettie a hug. Uh, oh, ask for consent. Of course, of course. No, yeah, not everybody's allowed to hug Nettie. I think that's actually just one Nettie hugger. Hey. And um, let's get into book love for this week. The two books that, uh, aside from my college macroeconomics textbook, that I leaned on were The Economist's Hour by Benjamin Applebaum, which is actually a great read. I like that book a lot, and I reference it uh, from time to time. And uh, it's not for the faint of heart. Uh, Capital by Thomas Piketty. It is, um, I think Capital will go down in history as important as Wealth of Nations or Das Capital. It's, it's that big. It's that organized. It's that important. Anyway, so those are the two books for book love. Um, before, Don't forget about the deficit myth. Oh, yeah. And the deficit myth, of course, by Stephanie Kelton. We have that in there. We've had that in there for a while. And actually, I think Pitchfork Economics just re-ran a 2020 show with Stephanie Kelton this week or last week. So if you're interested in hearing from Stephanie, interviewed by Nick and Goldie, then uh, go check out Pitchfork Economics. As always, Unfucking the Republic is edited and arranged by the sound design master, Manny Faces Media. Well, if we've got a new friend, I'd like to know his name. Name? I never had one, not a real one anyway. Then we'll give you one. One that is fitting for your many talents. And many faces. Hey, that's it. Man-y faces. Our show is lovingly produced by the great, powerful, omnipotent, and omniscient 99. Those are some good alliterations. Our theme music was composed by Tom McGovern. Visit TomMcGovern.com. Did any of you go to his Instagram? Do any of you still have it stuck in your head? Sucking on a shitty dog. Sucking on a shitty dog. The show is hosted by this guy and distributed over there. Send us your comments, your questions, your suggestions to unftrpod at gmail. Connect with us on social at UNFTRPod. Become a member at buymeacoffee.com slash UNFTR. From 99 to a buck 50, where can we go? Where will this go? Do you know? I don't. How about a thousand? Is that too much to ask for? From 99 members three weeks ago? To I had no idea what you were talking now? about, but I get it. Can we hit a thousand? I would love that. Why wouldn't we? Can we hit one million? Mm. Make it a pyramid scheme. I know you love your pyramid schemes. <laughs> <laughs>
I love cults, pyramid schemes, <laughs> and Scientology. It's your favorite that's thing? A, that's a cult. So Scientology is a religion, silly. No, it's not. Just because they have tax exempt status doesn't mean they're a religion because they don't do anything for the community. Visit our book list at bookshop.org slash shop slash UNFTR pod. Get some native roasted coffee. Now you have it available in whole bean at our shop at UNFTR.com slash shop. So we've got whole bean, we've got decaf and our new Mellow Maynard blend. And you can get a sampler that is entirely caffeinated now. There you go. Read our essays on Substack at unftr.substack.com. Remember, it's always going to be free. And this Substack has some charts and some graphs in it, just so you could see where we pulled the data from to find the 10Ks for all those really fucking shitty companies. 99, a pleasure as always. Hopefully I'll see you next week. Standard outro exit. Goodbye. And those who have bought bonds and those who have bought bonds, and those who have bought bonds, wow. A prologue on on vacation. (laughs) Louis Vuitton Reservoir. (laughs) Christian.